Welcome to Film Fly Club. I'm Glenn Falcons from Falcons Green, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yo! And freelance writing critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And we have a very special guest joining us, the One Heat Minute founder and host, as well as freelance film critic and 2SR alumni, Blake Howard. Blake, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. I wish I could be there in person, um, but people will hear that I'm quite husky at the moment. It's a real pleasure to finally be on the show. Hey, cheers. Yeah, it's good to have you here because it's fair, you know, you've had, you've had a big, big weekend, so it's very good to have a bit of rest. It's fair, your voice is a little husky because you've been recording, you've been recording for, wow, a long time. Like almost uh, two years? Two years, yeah. A little, uh, a little over uh, two years ago was the first gestation of the idea. And uh, and then two years later, as of the weekend, I was getting close to finishing the show, uh, and my son Keaton turned one on Saturday. So I thought, what would be a better thing for me than to just load this day up with two important milestones, <laughs> which is the end of one eight minute and my son's first birthday. So I dropped it on his birthday, and uh, and and yeah, it's, it's it's pretty crazy. It's a pretty nice weekend. It is yeah, a really congratulations, nice man. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. We should note that later in the, well, we will be talking with Blake at the commence, but later in the frag, we will be discussing Booksmart, and then, which is in cinemas on Thursday, and on the podcast, we'll be discussing Hail Satan, which is going to the Sydney Film Festival, is also getting a general release on tomorrow, Thursday. But first, we want to talk about One Heat Minute, because, well, first, we want to hear what it's all about, but also, you've had, you've alluded to it, but there's been some pretty big news this weekend. Yeah, look, so I'll start with what it is. Uh, it, it's pretty simple. The 1995 crime opus, Heat, written, directed, produced by Michael Mann, um, examined one minute at a time chronologically. One heat minute. And the show has been uh, just this epic undertaking and analysis that started off with one minute and a variety of guests taking anywhere in between sort of 15 to 35 minutes into pretty much the average time, 40, 45 minutes to an hour for every single minute of, of the film. Two episodes released a week, about a two-year project and all. And I've had an absolute cavalcade of some of the world's most amazing critical voices and creative, uh, you know, filmmakers like Joe Lynch, Michael Mann collaborators like Dante Sinati and Pascal Buber, um, actors and directors like Bill Duke, great critical voices, Manola Dargis, Bill Gittabiri, Walter Chaw, Matt Zoller-Zeit. The list is truly epic. Um, and, and this weekend, I was so grateful and lucky and, and really kind of surreal. <laughs> it was the most surreal experience of my entire sort of career. Um, I got to close out the show, um, the final minute, the 166th minute of the film with the filmmaker, Michael Mann. And so it became uh, the perfect way to end and uh, it went out with a bang, so to speak. And it's kind of this unbelievably surreal experience of finishing the show uh, after unpacking this movie, which I have such a deep affection for, uh, with with the man who created it, and and it was just a joy, and 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 I I, I can't I can't thank you guys enough for, for having us on and all the kind words you've said so far, but just the outpouring of the amazing sort of film community internationally has been um, just you know utterly staggering. Bravo, dude. Bravo. When you started off the project, I'm guessing you never imagined, obviously, Michael Mann, but even some of these larger um, international critical presences making it onto the show. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> to be brutally honest with you guys, I, I started this project as, you know, uh, first uh, when it was in a proof of concept stage, it was like, could this even work? You know, there had been minute by minute podcasts before, but 
I had a very specific vision that I wanted a very diverse group of people to talk about it, and I always wanted to be re-energized and re-engaged and, you know, challenged by different critical voices that we could sort of debate and discuss this film. And so, in my mind, I wanted to get people who really loved the movie on, but I also wanted to challenge it. And so, as it grew, I guess, you know, my aspirations or the things that I might have held back or thought of it or dreamed about or wished oh, in, in some imaginary world these things would happen, and, and then they started happening. You know, my, my favorite film critic in the world is Manola Dargis. And, you know, she was on an episode 30. You know, there's 166-minute episodes. There's a stack of bonus episodes we did as well as part of the show. But, you know, then it just started to build this incredible momentum and we had this incredible cachet of generous guests and they would just pass this on to the next people or elevate it with their audiences and, and it started to, you know, very much legitimize the project. And, as that grew, so did my aspirations, and and uh, and and you know, <laughs> culminating with Michael Mann. Like it, I, I wouldn't have even wanted to mention it um, to anyone that I would have wanted him on the show in the beginning because it would have felt like a, such an unrealistic thing. Mm. Um, but as it became, as the project grew and as it, it, it came together, um, there became only one way really to end it. And if he was available and he was. If he endorsed the show, then you know he had to help us close it out. Because right. who's going to follow Michael Mann? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no the, one wants to do that. After 170 episodes, um, the big question is, why heat? I just love it. Yeah. I love it so much. I just think it is an unparalleled masterpiece. I think it's entertaining. Uh, I think it's. I think it's engaging and I think it's deeply effective. Mm. And so, you know, movies, you know, for everyone who listens to your show and all of you guys as individuals, you know, there's, there's things that sort of passively are very entertaining, you know, very well crafted, something's formally really kind of cool. Then there's other movies that maybe don't work um, on the formal level, but on a deep thematic level, they touch you or characters that are super relatable. And for me, the more I unpack heat, like, Every single element, I think, is functioning in such a unity that it just, it, its potency is just unbelievable. Every scene, scene to scene, character, theme, emotional trajectory, you know, uh, formal grammar, just the craft and, and just the commitment of every single person. And I mean, from, from cinematography to, to the, the complimentary music to all this wonderful 70 strong speaking actors, some of the greatest actors in American cinema, um, all being commanded with Michael Mann, who, who he himself is such a dynamic, fastidious filmmaker. And, and so I think it's like this perfect storm of elements that I just never get tired of in, in, in any way. And, um, and I've just had an absolute blast watching it, unpacking it, and, uh, and just bringing these incredible critical voices around this sort of beautiful campfire to talk about this movie. Absolute blast indeed. I wanted to touch upon, look, we talk about a lot and uh, this death of the critic idea and that there is no such uh, film community left. But what this podcast kind of re-energized as you're talking about this idea that there is an international film community of not just critics, but film lovers, actually, that we actually genuinely love film so much. And that kind of gets lost in this critical evaluation and people seeing themselves as critics rather than seeing themselves as film lovers first. So I think uh, what your podcast has done has really sort of re-energized that discussion about this love for film. 
in general? Oh, look, I'm deeply moved by that. So, thank, firstly, thank you. And and what I would say is, I think I think sometimes you need time. You know, I, that's one thing about this movie is that I was never fully satiated on having spoken about it enough or written about it enough. Or I, you know, even if I gushed about it to you, you know, great gent, right now in this in this show, I wouldn't feel satisfied that it had enough critical scrutiny. And the great film critic for The New Yorker, Anthony Lane, used to say, you either review the movie the day and date that it comes out and you file your review for that weekend, or you never talk about it again for 10 years. Right. And what I really, I don't necessarily agree with that, but what <laughs> I really like about that approach is that he was very much around capturing what whatever culturally was happening with the movie and then if it stayed relevant. And I think that Staying power is so important, um, and and that's where that really breeds love. Like those films that people continue to go back to, and so this movie and the people that I've spoken to, and particularly Michael Mann as a filmmaker, just seems to have these movies that people just rally behind and continually revisit. And so it became this big loving thing. And and I and and you know, you can be critical of something and still love it. And mm. that's what I'm trying to do on the show. I love like. I was never afraid to be critical of it at all of my guests. Um, <laughs> to be fair, some of my guests actually don't like heat, but, but they respect it. And, and so they respect what it, it, it's aspiration, they respect its ambition, they respect its scale. Um, and I, so I think that that's what's really great. And so mm-hmm. if, 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 if my project and, and the amazing contributors to the project have, have done anything, uh, a, 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 anything, and you're saying that it's, uh, and you guys are thinking that it's reinvigorating that love, then I'm all for it because that's exactly what this project is set out to be. Now, you mentioned Michael Mann, and on that subject, I listened to the podcast, and it's quite a thing to have the director, of, not just the director of the film, but someone of such esteem. And what really struck me was many directors will not wax lyrical, will not go into their thinking or the conception behind films and others will, whereas um, Michael Mann, he went into such detail. And I wanted to know from the perspective of someone who's studied Heat for so many years, what was it like to hear firsthand from this perspective? But furthermore, um, did it challenge some of the other what conceptions you've had of Heat or many other views that have come over the months and now years of putting together this podcast? Yeah, God, it's... Um it was surreal. I was having out-of-body experiences. It was like, imagine us three, uh, us four, so rather, could sit here and talk and all have these different opinions, but to get it from the source, it's kind of really incredible. And I don't think it, uh, I don't think, uh, to answer one part of your question first, is I don't think it ever made me revisit some of the great theories or some of the great takes that have had, happened on my show. But what it did was it, it really lined up with like intentionality. So, you know, so much of being a filmmaker and an artist is you have an intention of what you want the audience to be feeling in a given moment. And I think that, you know, what was really striking about listening to, uh, listening to Mr. Man talk through this was I was just, I was just completely taken with his command of his intent and how that was being relayed to the audience. So he really, he really was far closer to us feeling along the lines that he wanted us as the audience to feel in heat than I think many directors get to. And I think that that's what really kind of struck me was that the very greatest filmmakers in the world are really commanding your emotions in precisely the way that they want to, are orchestrating you and 
getting you to take the precise ride that they're intending you to take. And then you not only take that ride, but you bring your baggage and your life experience and your taste to that and enrich their taste. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like it ever, it, it ever um, uh, took away for a take. In fact, it, like, it, it just it blew my mind. Like, the, you know, one of the famous scenes in the film is the tunnel scene. And it's a scene where Neil McCauley, Robert De Niro, is driving along with Edie, Amy Brenneman, and he's just gotten off the phone with John Boyd's Nate character, and Nate has set him up a new out. He's about to leave. And he basically says, you know, take it easy, brother. You're home free. Mm. And De Niro in that scene has got to have this cavalcade of tsunami of emotions on his face. He's got to, he's got to be tortured with the choice. Does he go and kill Kevin Gage, Wayne Grove, who betrayed their crew and got them into this mess and to a large extent? Or does he fly to New Zealand off to Fantasyland with Amy Brenneman to Edie? And Michael Mann told me that, like, I always respected Robert De Niro and Michael Mann's, you know, obsessive, uh, you know, crafting of that moment, but I didn't realize how obsessive. Like, they shot that over three nights. Three nights, one scene. Hmm. And they both agreed that they didn't get it for the two previous nights. Imagine whole nights of filming with just someone thinking on a camera driving. And so what it kind of did was just elevated the movie again in, in, in lots of strange ways. It was just wonderful. Matt, Absolutely wonderful. Matt is that kind of ultra detail obsessed director. And I guess that is maybe answering the question I was saying earlier of like why he like if there's somebody who's going to pack their film with enough ideas that you can keep thinking about every single minute it's Michael Mann and Heat itself is so dense like when I, I rewatched Heat before recording this episode and I was thinking um, something that I've heard people say on your show as well uh, that it really feels like it could be a TV show like there's yeah. so much packed into uh, it in terms of story, but also in terms of detail, you know, his consideration of the dynamics of how criminal groups would actually work, um, you know, the weapons, um, the the psychology, that just every, every this, this way that things sound, every single aspect of it has been labored over so much. And, you know, you, you're so funny that you said how it sounds, because Michael Mann actually said this phrase to me, and I think this is something that I'll definitely, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to articulate, I guess, and what I think we're all trying to articulate in our love of cinema, is when movies really work, um, Michael Mann's like, everything talks. You know, he was describing everything in his frame, whether it's the actor, it's the emotion, it's the story that's being told, it's the music, it's the choice of lighting, it's the choice of frame. It's like, everything talks. And, you know, and, and I've got to decide, like, where I turn the volume up, so to speak. Right. And so, but everything's talking. Like something, there might be a prominent or a dominant thing happening in a scene or a space, but everything's talking. And so, for him, that deep consideration of everything that's going on in the frame and everything that's happening in every shot, I just think sometimes, I don't know, it feels like a lost art. Like that level of obsession is, uh, is sometimes a lost art because, you know, we're in the Netflix generation, all of us, and, you know, there are many shows we watch on Netflix and you go, just kill three of those episodes they didn't even need to be there you know yeah um, that's what that's the that's what stranger things three i know what you mean <laughs> right, but that, yeah, just that, kill off that season entirely and but, it'll work but that is um that is uh oh god this is opening a whole can of worms but i was going to say that's tv generally you know it's always yeah. too long yeah it's but, so yeah. nice to to really celebrate a film that is this tight 
that, you know, less is more. Even at three hours, heat really flies by. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, if you don't mind me asking, how many times have you actually watched heat? Look, I would have to say conservatively 250. Wow. Nice. Um, I, I would just say to you guys, like every, every episode, for every episode on the show, I didn't watch the whole film um, as I was preparing for every episode, but what I usually did was find the moment in the film that I was watching, and I'd watch about 10 minutes before and 10 minutes after. Um, because, and you know, as we're earlier on, you, you just watch up to that minute and a few minutes beyond, but it was just about contextualizing the scene, what's happening in those moments. And, you know, the more and more that I dived into the show, the more and more, uh, very sort of, um, very, very subtle, but very, very, uh, you know, very rich. If you, if you give it the time to check them out, there's great match cuts and really cool stuff that's going on so I always try to watch 10 minutes either side so imagine that about 170 episodes and I'm watching 20 minutes 170 times wow. yeah. you know plus whatever I'm watching in the you know and I've seen the movie twice in about the last 18 months of the cinema so you know there's it's a lot of there's a lot of viewing of these, uh, in the last yeah. little while in my life now Chris asked the obvious question earlier, why heat? I think the other obvious question is, you've seen this film more times than anyone, or, or as you possibly alluded to on the show, with the possible exception of Michael Mann. Michael Mann. Um, what in your, we have some, I think we have some different views on it in the studio, but what in your view is the best minute of heat? Oh, that's a great one, Glenn. I'd love to hear what you guys think. But look, I, I think um, it's very, very difficult for me to separate two minutes of the film, actually three. And I'll go with the third, which is probably more surprising, is there's a minute uh, there's a minute where Lillian um, who is uh, um, Dennis Haysbert's partner, he plays Don Breen, looks up at the screen and sees that he's died uh, in the film. Um, oh, and yeah. it's kind of a it's kind of a side story. It's post the heist. He's the driver who Robert De Niro enlists at the last moment when Danny Trejo, Trejo's driver, um, basically doesn't can't can't go along. You know, he's like you know they're on me like a cheap suit was his line. That is probably one of the most heartbreaking and resonant moments because it's silence and you watch her feel the weight of all of her face just dissipate from her because she's disappointed that he's leaving. And, and that moment haunts me, I think. That that right this minute is probably my third favourite. But the final two minutes, so minute 165 and 166, okay. um, are, are the synthesis of the entire movie for me, of the themes of the movie. And, you know, the I told you I was never going back. It's this sort of inimitable, you know, final line from Robert De Niro and Al Pacino saying, yeah. And that's in the 165. And then 166 features that great, you know, neon fresco of, Pacino, De Niro, up against the lights of the airport in LA, and I just can't separate that because for me the the kind of monumental weight of this movie all lands on those minutes, and so when I watch them, it's almost like my life, which is heat, flashes before my eyes, <laughs> and so I, I can't. I, I think that they're so profoundly great. What? But what about you guys? I'd love to hear what your favorite minutes are. Uh, um. That's tough. I, I, again, would say that it, it's hard to go past the ending. I did really also really like uh, your f- third favorite minute. Um, I love the way that man gives everyone, I guess except for Wayne Grow, um, <laughs> and a few of the 
a few this sleaze, there's a few sleaze balls in there but most everyone in this in heat is afforded a lot of dignity and respect by man and the way that that moment of violence um, rather than just being a side story of oh one more guy got killed off we get to see the story of him at the at the cafe being mistreated and the commentary about how the system's broken and he feels forced into going back into crime and yeah. you know man shows us the consequences of the violence um, that that's something that sticks with me in all of his films. He shows us really explicit violence, but um, there always seems to be a weight to it. It never feels like we're just in it for you know consequence-free, glorifying it in you know dynamic bloodletting. No, not yeah, the, the fallout, the fallout from that heist takes mm. more than thirty or forty minutes. Right. You know, um, I would almost argue that the fallout of the heist takes us all the way to 166 minutes. Like it is. It is just consequence after consequence after you know, uh, you know things being cut loose and, and and people dying and people being let go and people being forced into the choices that they didn't want to make that mm. they have to make. Another minute I really like is um, early on when Wengro uh, executes the people in the Amagard van, or the, yeah, that the way that it's shot, the guy who can't hear because his uh, eardrums have been blown out the the sort of dolly in on his face it's such an affecting moment with of tension being yep. built chris you've stolen my favorite minute right. thanks <laughs> yeah cool that is a great it's a great it's a great minute chris it's a great minute both of you just it's that that those dead eyes yeah oh, those dead eyes in that hockey mask is uh, unforgettable and it's remarkable how many films have attempted to copy this um, we look, I think the town is one, but one example yep. of where heat is a template or something to aspire to and, I, and it just has in so many respects hasn't I can't think of examples where it's been equaled whether it no. be the high sequence whether Dark it be Knight the is images yes another, uh, with the, the, the Dark Knight is the most effective remake of heat right. um, <laughs> um, that is the most effective um, there are plenty of others that don't yeah, and I, I tend to agree. There, there, there are many others that I feel run with one thematic thread from heat, thinking that that's what heat is. Hmm. Um, and I think that the the denser that this reading and this analysis has gotten, the more rich that it is. So it's like when they're trying to copy it, you know, uh, there's a film critic in Oz, Cam Williams, who, who, who coined a phrase which I'll I'll share with you guys called heat blocking. And he said that if someone says this movie is inspired by heat. You spend the rest of the movie being blocked by it, and you just want to go home and watch heat because it's so much better, clearly, <laughs> than this movie. <laughs> yeah, I keep. I mean, you're right, and part of it is the density of it, not in terms of just the content, but in terms of how much it is trying to do. And a lot of times, I think we get caught up in films with big ideas who can't execute as much as just having big ideas, but the execution kind of falls flat. But with Heat, I think it's the perfect balance of big ideas, complex ideas, and the execution actually matching up to that, which is why it's so hard to just pick one minute. And actually, going minute by minute is probably the best homage you can give it because every minute is kind of, you know, in itself something quite amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, there was one one key question that often comes up when people were doing the show or around the show. is like, is there something going on in every minute? And I guess at the beginning, I naively was like, you know, expected, oh, surely there's one or so minutes that aren't that interesting. But there genuinely isn't. Like, every single minute has been dynamite. 
you know, uh, e- even even a car driving through a dilapidated and abandoned drive-in, you know, d- you know, resulted in a forty-five minute digression about post-apocalyptic landscapes <laughs> and man's uh, uh, man's similarities to Lynch in that regard uh, when it comes to LA as a sort of living but also post-apocalyptic. I landscape. see it. So, <laughs> yeah, um, me too. You know, it's it's, <coughs> it's so rich, so dense. So it's strange to me. I remember seeing Heat um, not very long after it came out for the first time. I've watched it uh, a few times since, and there were three moments that struck me the first time I watched it, which have always stayed with me and which remained with me. And these were moments that, before I was into really into film or film criticism, that I thought, wow, these are the stand-up moments of the film, but they have not been as copied as some of the references that we've spoken about in this discussion. Um, my second favorite moment is absolutely the final se- sequence, which... Um, both referred to. Um, I love, as an aside, um, probably my third favorite moment, the bit earlier in the film when um, Pacino's character knows that he's got, that Daenerys taking the photos of him and he's just throwing oh, his yeah. other hand and it's like, oh no, wait, yep, all right, it's this quick cathartic moment of, yep, take this picture, so you got me. But so Al Pacino is so priceless in this film. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> but the, the absolute standout moment, and I've seen people, try, directors try to copy it, but it's absolutely never been matched, was the sequence for me where... Um, there's that there's the just that slight noise, and the nearest character has to decide: Do I go ahead oh, with yeah, this? That's so Does good. this happen? And it's this minute of the same shot of front on of each character, back and forth, mirror uh, mirror mirror image. How do what do I do? Do I take this chance? Is this enough? How do I justify backing down to everyone around me? But I know the stakes mm. and that decision to do it. It's such a powerful moment, and I absolutely adore it. Mm. Yeah, look, it's, you talked about, you, it's funny, Glenn, you just talked about two moments where there's great interactions where they don't actually share the screen that are almost as effective, if not more effective, than them actually sitting down at Kate Manalini's diner and talking, which is that these two titans sharing the screen or sharing the proximity to one another and the energy is so electric that it overcomes infrared and that it overcomes distance and that it overcomes time, night, day, light, shade. It's incredible. And those spaces are so electric as well. So, like, they don't, you know, right then in that intimate moment, they couldn't be further away from each other, one another technically, and they're, like, 10 metres apart from one another. And and they couldn't be more intimate when they're hundreds of metres away in that other beautiful scene with the camera. Like, it's just, you want to know what they're looking at? Yeah. Uh, I, can, I almost start, like, doing the dialogue with you guys right now, and I just feel like I need to because I just love that scene so much too. But, yeah, there's just great moments where... There's inferences of them being together. The energy is electric. And yeah, it's just it's also restraint. You've got opportunities for them to face off. I love you. You choose not to. Right. I, I love also how man shows them being so aware of their environment. Like we've just spoken about Macaulay noticing a, a sound ringing out. But there's also, at, you know, at the very end, Hannah noticing the shadow of Macaulay. Yeah. It's yeah. it's so cinematic as well, you know how sound and light are the things that give give away presences, and the characters are attuned to it. And it's instructing us as viewers to pay attention to all the little cinematic details. Actually, that final shootout really reminded me um, watching it again of of the way Leone would shoot a shootout. Absolutely. Yeah, those close-ups. Yeah, all the, you know. The- the wonderful close-ups of their faces and especially that final framing of Pacino's face. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, man is a Leone fan too and yeah. a Peckinpah fan. Right. And it's, it's got a very, you know, even the final episode, he describes 
the airport is like an alien landscape. It's a space not made for human beings, us bipedal things. He wanted it to. He wanted it to be outside of the LA world that we're so familiar with. And I just feel like, you know, sometimes those desert spaces look like they're on a Martian landscape too. And so there's like romance of an airport comings and goings, but there also is this alien space that's right there. It's ma- it's not made for human beings. I think he was his phrasing as a, and I just love that. Love that turn of phrase. I love that thought and that sentiment. And it's pushing people out to the boundaries, like the classic image of man characters staring out at the ocean right at the edges of existence yeah staring into the sublime you know they can't escape their programming it's one of those things and I think that that's what you know we all one of the great things about a man man hero is that is that they're deeply relatable you know these are people that are obsessed with doing their jobs well and sometimes they're willing to sacrifice family time and courtesy and cordiality to do that and that's a deeply relatable thing and obviously it's amplified to the dramatic and sometimes melodramatic when you talk about the consequences being criminal you know life and death um but uh, but i think that that's what's also deeply relatable like coming home late to your partner because you've been out late pursuing your you know pursuing the thing that gives you that you've prescribed to give your life meaning and messing it up or or sacrificing not having a partner because you feel like it's going to impinge on what your dream is and then realizing like what what is my what am i doing with my life is is this actually enriching me or is it is it is it torturing me these are great questions so i think it's going to be hard for people not listening listening to this to not go search out heat i do want to see it again and to also not listen to your show dude where is it where can we all find it where can we track it down the best place you can find it is just go to oneheatminute.com um, we've got links to all the relevant podcast app sites that everyone uses or just go to your podcasting app and type in One Heat Minute and uh, you've got a good 170-odd episodes of uh, listening to enjoy. So uh, I'd love you guys to listen to it. Reach out um, if you uh, if you love the show. Um, at Blake is Batman on Twitter and uh, hit me up or just hashtag One Heat Minute and uh, we'll find it and um, love, love to be engaged uh, with everyone about the show. Well, please do reach out and do... Congratulations on such a monumental achievement, and not just the, not this weekend, but the last few years, and even having the idea of and the gumption and the courage to put it together—it's it's incredible. And also, just personally as well. I mean, congratulations on your son turning one. That's a yeah, yeah. big thing. Yeah, but yes, thank you. It's been it has been a monumental weekend, and he has no idea about um, why his dad was uh, his phone was melting down on the weekend. Uh, <laughs> but one day I'll explain. Um, and yeah, look, thank you so much. I, I, I can't, I can't thank you guys enough for having me on, and I can't thank the amazing people that have helped me get it here. And it's, uh, it's just been one incredible journey that I'm just so glad uh, is now complete for people to hear. And and with a towering ending, it's just, uh, it's, it's a real treat. So it was a treat for me. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Blake Howard from One Heat Minute talking all things about the phenomenal and incredible milestone in his pod now completed podcast and now we are discussing all things book smart this is the feature debut from the director olivia wilde and it is starring beanie feldstein and caitlin dever and it is incidents tomorrow it is the story of two young women on the cusp of graduation who decide who haven't really parted a lot they're book smart and they're going to spend their final night before graduation seeking out 
that elusive high school party. If this sounds like another film that was very popular about 12 years ago, you're not <laughs> wrong. It is very similar and I will say derivative of in many respects. It's its own film too in many other respects. Super bad is that film. Yes. (laughs) If you haven't seen that, go out and see that now and see it first. Yeah. The coincidence, quotation marks, of this uh, connection to super bad is is made weirder because arguably the lead of the film, Benny Feldstein, is the sister of Jonah Hill, arguably the lead of Superbad. And filling the same characters. and same Yeah, character. she's the same character, the and, one who, who wants to party. And the Deva character is the equivalent very much of the Michael Sarah character. Similarly, yep. it's a different trajectory, but there are some similar tidbits. The um, a prominent sequence involving a car, um, the involvement of the police force. Yeah. And, yep. uh, School principle, everything is derivative. In, a in lot of sense. it, yeah. A lot of it's like Superbad. But um, people have forgotten that Emma Stone wasn't Superbad, so I guess people do have, have a very really? short public memory. No, I, so she just wasn't a star when Superbad came out, so people don't no think, oh, you know, that Emma Stone movie, Superbad. No yeah, one was really big uh, in that movie, but ev- that launched a lot of people. Uh, Jonah Hill had been in Knocked Up the same year, and uh, Michael Sarah, <laughs> you know, I knew, oh, I everyone knew Michael Sarah. Everyone yeah. knew yeah. Michael Sarah. George Michael. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. weird that Michael Sarah was the biggest draw of Superbad. Um, you think about it. <laughs> we, we, we talk about Superbad. We should talk about this movie. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about <laughs> what we Good, do, true. What we, uh, what things we think are detractions. Certainly, there's been a lot of hype of this. I'd like to start however with what I enjoyed about the film, and that is that the two leads, every scene where it's just the two of them and they're allowed to play off each other is very, very good. They have a great dynamic. They have an intrinsic dynamic. They have a dynamic that is emblematic of one that could only transpire from having spent years and most of your life as close and inseparable friends that is certainly very apparent here. Um, there are any number of the encounters, some of the idiosyncrasies as they meet or greet each other, um, the trolling of one of the character's parents, played by Lisa Kudrow and Will Forte. So one of the characters trolling is very funny. The best scene in the film is a later confrontation with, uh, with involving the two characters where some of it, it's just Olivia Wilde, who does a decent job in many respects, is allowed to just pan or does pan between the two and just lets the camera settle on them. And in this sequence, Demi, it's she, and sometimes the dialogue takes center stage, sometimes it doesn't, and you're allowed to let, you're left with an impression of what is said and what is done. And that, for me, worked very well. I know there are other aspects of this which this film did not. Okay, I'll take from your lead and talk about what I liked about it. Uh, I think this is really uh, carried by the performers, especially Benny Feldstein, who is very funny. Um, I think there's a pretty likable spirit to it because it's rooted in this female friendship, which I think does feel realistically not uh, portrayed, not over, uh, not overplayed, um, it's believable, it's warm. Um, and I think, like I said before, the performers are all really good. They really elevate the material, is my backhanded compliment. What did you think, Virat? Well, it's not really that good. But all right, here we you go. Know, you no, know, it's no, not. No, okay. <laughs> the, the, the problem is, and, and a part of the problem, and I think this problem is exacerbated with how much of the material is trying to contextualize in the current political climate of how films ought to be made in how they look in terms of their morality. So this film is trying very hard to tick all the boxes in kind of a checklist manner of what a woke comedy, a young woke comedy ought to look like. And I don't think it does a good job 
precisely because I think it is trying to look like a work comedy rather than just trying to be funny most of the time. And when the characters are allowed to be funny and play off each other, you're right. They are genuinely funny. But, but most of the material is so dragged down by the sort of external sort of facets of what the script is wanting the characters to do rather than the characters actually just allowing themselves to be on screen. I think that's the problem. Okay, I don't know if I entirely agree with this. And if we're talking about the film as a piece of work representation, one of the things we have to look at to the film is representation of certain characters, and particularly minorities. And one of the main characters in this film is queer. Now, you, you could make the art, and this, I, I'm, not, I'm implying this is necessarily what you were going for, but this is, if people who wanted to make that argument would put the option to look to this depiction in the film. I don't think the film, the, the, the film depicts this character it's queer. It's not. They don't make a big point of it. They don't put the whole film around it. It's just a fact of this character. Um, I, I'm. It's just a simple. I, I remember uh, we talked about this something in a completely different context. Something up. Something about Mary some time ago. How there was that scene where they smoked a joint, and it was it's a no regular thing, and it's yeah. no big deal, and it's not treated as a big deal in this film. If I don't think it's going for woke points so much as simply, at least in this respect, representing um, an aspect of our culture. Okay, I agree um, that representing a queer um, character and queer relationships as just a normal thing in the same way that a high school rom-com or a high school uh, raunchy comedy would betray heteronormative relationships is a good thing. Um, But I can see where Verrat is coming from on a general note that this film uh, looks to be... um, is going for work points. And this manifests itself in positive ways. Like, for the most part... The humor in this is not very mean-spirited. And a lot of less woke high school comedies of the past, I th- I think, you know, have a, a bit of an ugly streak to them. It doesn't pursue yeah. easy stereotypes or mean stereotypes. No. It doesn't take derogatory shots at yeah. any, really any character. But maybe once you turn on this kind of cynicism that Virat and perhaps myself as well have approached <laughs> the film with, you start to think, okay, oh, you know, it's great that you've got, like, um, moments where we take time out to talk about, like... Saying take time out is maybe being a little bit harsh, but it's like now we're going to talk about female body representation. Now we're going to talk about my body, my rights. Now, you know, look at how I've got a free Palestine sign in my room. Like there's all these window dressing elements that don't really have anything to do with the narrative per se. But they're just there to show, like, look at how progressive we are. And, you know, there's yeah, another... Or, or even the recurring gag calling a Malala, which is, you know, once again... That was funny. That was I, funny. I, I, it was, again, a lot of the idiosyncrasies which were distinct to this film. I mean, we, we just got that. We knew what they were saying. We got it. Yeah. Um, but, the, like... Yes. Yeah, you know, the, the problem with that is, look, well, I'm not saying to say it's emblematic for a certain kind of upper sort of, you know... Or maybe that is what the milieu is, where they are so in tune with the kind of woke politics, they can, where they can make a joke like, oh, I'm calling a Malala, without recognizing the irony of the joke itself, which is like, you know, she didn't get to do what she wanted. You know, it's not... We should clarify that calling a Malala means that you get to do this once in a while, where you basically, I've asked you to do something, you just have to do it. The, but look, this is a movie where one of the characters, um, this is treated not as a joke. <laughs> one of the characters is going to Botswana to oh, help yeah. make tampons and that's not treated as a parody of liberal do-gooders I know rich I'm, wealthy privileged people try, you know coming to uh, be, <laughs> help it, it, it should be portrayed as parody exactly which excuse is, me I've spent quite a bit of time in Botswana and you know the folks there they need a lot of aid and a lot of support so I I high five I you know look, hands up for that look that's what I'm trying to say I'm, I'm just like I'm confused about this kind of 
the placement, the contextual placement of these messages that come across, are they ironic to the extent where even the characters realize how completely stupid they come across in the, some of these scenes? The, look, or is it like, you know, a self-aware high-five where, like, we know we're from this milieu, hence we can joke about it. But I don't think, you're right, Chris, I don't think the characters are portrayed It's just that maybe that, that there's just a whole lot of these things. Like, we're also going to have a, you know, scene in a unisex bathroom and a character talking about why that's a good thing. Like, it's oh, just God, like, yeah. there's so many things, like, pat on the back, look at how left-wing we are. But, but it's all the this, kind of all this, white it doesn't, liberal feminism which kind of just kind of wants me to, you know put a whatever compass in my eye kind of feel anyway compass in my eye <laughs> wow look uh, these uh, things the, the, i didn't think were particularly the, a bad thing and i think it's getting off track from what are the bad things yeah, about they're, the film. They're, they're, they're pretty they're pretty okay they're, they're, these are pretty accurate representations of how people the fact that there was a scene in a unisex bathroom and that this is not generally portrayed or depicted in cinema any cinema to, or American cinema to boot is remarkable and it led to and, in, and one of the best sequences in the film is characters confront each other about matters entirely distinct from the location and perceptions of how separate from issues of representation how the book, quote unquote book smart characters viewed the others in their school on the matter you refer to the signs as as an example things in their rooms as signals of what these characters are and the bumper are. stickers on their cars and the bumper stickers um, I want to. My favorite thing about this film is it was a little touch where you can blink and you miss it, and it's on the main character's room. It's a sign saying "A Room of One's Own," and it's this yeah, incredible. That was a good touch, and, that, and it was such a distinct, clever. It, it signals. The, it says, "This is what this character is." Much more than, and I will give you the much more generic stuff that was on the bumper stickers. So I think there's. I understand what they were going for. I think there were times where they did it very well, and I think the t- there were times when it, I agree it was generic and didn't lend these characters. Um, or is any interest that otherwise could have had if it had gone yeah. to anything more in more particular detail. When I say these things are window dressing, I mean, what exactly is the relevance to the general narrative of the character having these particular political beliefs? It's basically just there nothing. to... It's Absolutely there, to, it's there to, exactly. to get the... Um, it's, it's worked because we've got critics falling over themselves saying that this quite plain quite generic high school comedy is like a masterpiece liberals like you know people like us have film critics tend to be quite left-wing yeah. they've successfully gamed the system it's, it's, to get those people it's, on side it's, 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 to an aspect which is tangential to the exactly. actual material of the film really it's exactly like bradley whitford's character in get out saying i would have voted for obama a second time if i could third it's time exa- yeah third time actually that's right <laughs> so it's exactly that sentiment because i think you're right it a lot of it Especially, let's say, you know, that Room of One's Own. The movie's not about their politics. Yeah, A Room of One's Own with Virginia Woolf. I mean, it's it's a great reference. I get get that. But at the same time, I feel like, where is that going? It's not even... No, no, that's a better point because that's showing how literary that that these people love literature and come from a feminine literary perspective. And insular as reflected in the themes of the book. Right, yeah. So that on many levels that worked, which is why I give that props. But I appreciate that, um, which tells a lot about the character. Other things that we were that's supposed to signal this, what this character is didn't in the way that they could have or should have. Okay, let, let, let's move into the actual narrative because, you know, for whatever window dressing it is, the actual narrative is quite... Generic. It's hitting some certain beats well, in it, what it's supposed to need, hit. So, in from a narrative perspective, I was so you, frustrated because you, I was like, "This is just like every Jedi Apatow movie, well, which he did when he was actually good." You need to detract points from this film, I think, for it being so familiar and so based on the template of a pre-existing film. 
there is just that sense of familiarity. I don't think the um, f- obviously some people will disagree, and um, but I don't think changing it to a feminine perspective transcends that. I think it definitely adds something new because Superbad is is really defined by horny boys. Yeah, but um, and th- this has quite a different feel. I but, will respond relate to a different audience. Yeah, but um, I don't see how you, that can be entirely looked past. The, the yeah, the the critical response to this film has been strange to me. There's there's nothing in the actual narrative template which is trying something new or fresh or trying to subvert expectations. Apart from the fact that now we have just played with the template insofar as these kind of window dressing points. If they're to be taken literally, then that's the point, but I don't think they're doing much with it, which is kind of the problem. So turning to the narrative aspects of the film and some of its biggest attractions, I referred earlier to how my favorite thing about this is when the two leads, the two very good leads, are able to just play off each other. The problem is any sequence which does not involve the two of them playing off each other pivot to one tired form of humor which is the two of them being very nonplussed as some exaggerated crazy habit starts usually involving one other character or more habits in front of him whether it be um, the scene with Jason Zakes, the principal playing out of the car which admittedly was quite funny or some of the other sequences that took place on the boat um, a couple work in isolation when you constantly re- have this one recurring form of humor it becomes boring what, so, what sort of humor are you referring to the one where it's the they stand in the background and they have to watch um, and well, some, some dude being some, wacky. Yeah, something crazy happens. Well, yeah, th- you're touching on one of my big issues with the humor in this film, which I think is an issue with most recent American mainstream comedy, which is that just that it's way too over the top. Yeah. Um, but in this film, it's a bit of an issue because this film tries to go for more serious material later on, and I don't think it easily coexists with the wackiness this movie goes like really way out there in terms of how over the top um it'll it's the side characters are and some of the plot points are then goes to like now it's oh, yeah, serious the, the time. change in tone is so yeah. jarring and then right Ooh. back to craziness we're gonna yeah this is actually the biggest problem in the film you look at films like a uh, tedian classics american pythons ahead about you well, there's a lot of wackiness and it's fun to watch then the film plateaus in terms of its dramatic effect to deliver some actual emotional beats and sustains you that you just call american pie a teenage classic it is it absolutely okay. is it's a very it's 20th anniversary okay. coming out next month okay. it's an okay. excellent film and it was never equaled even close by any of the terrible sequels now with regard to you, you saw him go, them go for some sincere moments at the end, whether it be on prom night or later. This pivots to that in the third act, and that's fine. But when you have a semi-fourth act where we just have to go back to the craziness, yep. it doesn't land. Send and everyone home land, happy with the good spirits of wacky book but, smart. But it gets worse when you have to rely on really stupid plot points to get a character from point A to B, which yeah. we can't ruin. We don't want to ruin when, a point When like, the book. movie's already... Yeah gone to a serious place it's like oh we're back to this and yeah it doesn't carry out those tonal shifts i think it's actually just a pretty bad script in a number of ways um like early on in the film i've alluded to earlier that i said that this is really a character carried piece um but early on i was thinking hang on the jokes are coming thick and fast but not many of them are actually funny but there's the the feeling that it's funny because the character because the actors are funny watching them you know go through the motions is funny but the material isn't that good but it's bad on a number of levels 
I mean, part of the problem with this film, especially what it does with the material, is we're supposed to believe these are wacky characters, but there's not much physical comedy happening, which is kind of a loss. Oh, there is, and it's goddamn terrible. But I'll, I'll get to that, that later. Yeah, 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 plenty let, of physical comedy. Yeah, and the claymation. I'll get to that later. Oh, dude, I, 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 I can I, go all I, day I on that. I wouldn't call that physical comedy except bad attempts at physical comedy, which is not funny. And I, I, Because when I was watching it, I felt like, is this what... They, are they trying to be funny? Because I wasn't sure whether they were trying to be funny. Look, uh, no, it, they, they definitely are. But when I say this is a bad script, I think there's just moments that jump out at me and think like, hang on, this wouldn't happen. Like even mm-hmm. the basic premise of the film, the whole idea is that the Benny Felton character Molly is obsessed with academic performance oh, and God, yeah. super competitive. I've been in that environment. There's no way that that character would be blindsided by realizing that people around her are actually geniuses who are going to elite universities. I know. That character would be on that. There's I know. No, the premise of this movie is that she's surprised to find out that they were actually as good at academically as her while also going to parties, and she feels like she's missed out because she's been the, the, the book smart but uh, socially isolated person. And so she has a meltdown and has to go to all the cool parties to be as good as them. Okay, I'm going to make a distinction. I feel it could have worked if it had betrayed her, like the Caitlin Devitt character's insula. However, it makes the point that the Bernie Feldstein character is hyper competitive, exactly, and is the school captain, and yeah, and it takes it incredibly seriously. Yeah, there's but, but no that, way she could that, have been yeah, blindsided that, yeah, by exactly. academic performance that, that good by all of her people peers. She's known for but 12 yeah, years. Exactly. No way. I mean, and she's she's like getting all up in their face in yeah. the early scenes where she, we see how she. Which is a response fairly to how badly she was gossiped about, um, right, when no, I didn't think she was there. Yeah. But she would have had an inkling that these aren't all, you know, no, you yeah. know getting C's and D's. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a dumb premise, but, you know, okay. But, but part of the problem with the movie is just that, where things happen for no rhyme or reason to get people from one situation to another situation, where basically they're just, you know, placeholders for wacky things to occur to these characters as they look on and they try to be the voices of reason in a wacky environment which kind of gets boring really quickly from let's say a party sequence at a house to a boat to then back to another scene you know it just feels like the location change happens and here's we are at a new location with some other wacky people doing wacky things before we're back to you know a new location but it worked in super bad and it worked because there was spatial awareness of the small tower they're in and getting from yes. A to B. They're just able to get from places and they make it very quickly. They're able to Look, fly and they make a joke about if one character is able to magically transport between I places. I found that, that to be... I liked that. I thought it was funny, but it, it, they could they, they laid a little too heavy on it later in the show. Yeah, sh- but in, isn't in, it just in events? revealing how flimsy the script is and trying to call, make it into a joke? Yeah, but I, I, agree. I didn't mind it when it was the haphazard, crazy antics which characterized the first two thirds of this movie. But then, but then, then it re- becomes serious and delivers a serious speech near the end. Yes, and then it returns to the crazy antics uh, when it should not have and maintained its since and should have maintained its sincere posture. Okay, so going back to what Virat said, um, I'll call attention to Superbad because you know the movie know. Is, seems so to be hard not to it's hard not to you, you, you can't know, you can't it's but so in super bad it has wacky kind of sequences but they follow through like the it, the meeting in the police in the McLovin scene turns into a whole subplot of the film I know that it's, explains it's amazing that character goes, and, and the callbacks are like you know it, it yeah, becomes part of the, in, yeah, in the this, fabric of the narrative apart from a pretty weak callback near the end um, that goes into this general uh, issue we're talking about of going too over the top the, for the most part, it's just kind of like one and done with these sequences. They're fairly disconnected from each other. Um, but when, in relation to that, they experience one, you know, wacky scene 
at which moves them to the next location. There was one uh, aspect of this, which is, uh, look, I was reminded of this Howard Hawks quote while I was watching it, which is that a good movie has three good scenes and no bad ones. And <laughs> this movie has a scene which is just so yeah. atomically bad that like, I can't see how you can say this is a great film. Yes. All right. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk about this. The idea of um, characters accidentally ingest drugs and then there, there's wacky comedy that ensures has been done so many times before. It's such a bad yeah. cliche that if you're going to do it, you have to do it pretty well. It's like a Hitler joke, right? <laughs> if, you, if you're going to do that, you better have something good. It has to be Taika Waititi right. playing Hitler. Mel Brooks, you know. You've, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Taika, that's a which, fresh which one. Is on, on, on so many levels, it's just great. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I was waiting for this to happen from the moment that a character, you know, the girl who magically disappears and reappears shoved strawberries in the character's mouths and said, eat the strawberries. I thought, okay, so there's going to be a drug bit. So I was waiting for it to happen. So there's that extra level of expectation because the joke wasn't well masked enough. What eventuates is so goddamn terrible. They they become... Uh, all right, they, they were told that they ingested uh, an Asian version of ayahuasca. Asian wasca, okay? <laughs> all right, so for a moment, I'll suspend my disbelief and buy that there's a drug out there that can make you believe that, you know, that you're both dolls. But the material in the, the claymation scene that follows is not funny at all. Take Strip it. It's ridiculous as, as far as like a, a drug uh, thing, obviously, because as we, oh, me yeah. and Glenn said when we saw it, drugs that's don't... That's not how drugs work, not how drugs Kids work. don't take drugs, yeah. and that's not how <laughs> that's drugs not work. How drugs but, but, work. Also, but even if Glenn can say right. that that's not how drugs but work, look, then if, you really need to know if, it's really bad. If, look, if even... But strip it from the drug context, <laughs> right? And the scene would just be plain unfunny. In any context, the basic it's basically it's funny because we are now dolls and we comment on the on like wow it's sexist that uh, that dolls are shaped this way oh look I'm sexy now like it's not it wasn't particularly funny or clever but that's but then part of the problem when then, the politics come and well, go well, so flimsily right, right? it's but a then, message scene which says you can get over drug use very quickly yeah, within a matter of an hour if you never use drugs okay before. so so I'm thinking okay let, I make I'm suspending my disbelief I shouldn't that uh, the there's a drug out there that does this to your mind but um when they leave the scene they immediately go back to the normal kind of pattern of conversation drive yeah they're able to drive afterwards after they've they've just gone on something that mind-bending um and and immediately afterwards they're like they go back to the same way that the dialogue was written prior to this scene where they're like all right we've we've uh gone to a party we've done drugs let's just go home and it's like Come on, like if you, your mind's been through that kind of experience, I'm thinking you're going to be a little bit altered clearly, on the other end. Yeah, Call clearly, Will Forte and yeah. Lisa Kudrow. They, they, gonna... they go from being like that high oh, yeah. to yeah. being like right back to normal like 15 minutes later. Like it clearly shows that the scriptwriters and Olivia Wilde <laughs> have no experience of what doing so, actual drugs feels like. But it like. was just so hacky and so lazy and not funny. And no, it no, calling no. attention to itself, like in the shift to the animation style, it's like it was meant to be a... Um, big centerpiece scene of the film, and the thing is, but look, the, look. The main thing is, it's not funny. Like people will say, "Oh, this is a comedy movie. Lighten up. You're taking it way too seriously." But jokes have to be believable within the context of the world. There was an, another example of a joke like this later in the movie, where, um, just quickly, the a, a character sees um, the characters are wearing matching clothes, and they ride in the back of 
someone else a car and she's like, oh, I've got some spare clothes. Why don't you change into these, right? Um, and then they, the characters both change into another woman's spare clothes. And immediately when she announced she had spare clothes in the back of the car, I thought, oh, are they in the right size? And then it turns out that they're in the right size for both of them. But this is the comic, um, the classic comedy duo of the skinny taller one and the fatter short one. And yet they both have clothes that fit them. Like I get, if, and, and the teacher is significantly taller, and, sig- and yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Not, not the has not as the shape or size of exactly any it's of these characters. Like the a joke needs to be, it can be wacky, it can be outrageous, yeah. but it the, needs but the to, setup needs to be believable for you yeah. to land the punchline. Otherwise, because when the punchline came, I couldn't even register it as comedy. I was just going, yeah, like what WTF kind of thing. What? Yeah, the yeah. part of the problem, and you, and you've hit the nail on the head, is that how to film treats its own politics and you know this idea when the narrative finds it convenient the politics is just inserted into it especially in the claymation scene for example not for comedy but for scoring these wacky brownie points like look how woke we, we made can be on look we made presentation in dolls okay you, you know but like you, you want to see a good version of how this is done uh in much much more nuance watch the black mirror episode uss callister where the individuals are reimagined in fantasy that was way with, better with oh. without genitals totally. and in this terrible dude's mind and again because so much more detail this did not but but that's that's my problem you know good call if, if you want to make a film with politics and comedy and you know how they interact actually commit to it and this is the well, problem with well, this the film. movie has six writers and it reportedly was in development i'm pretty sure it's six it's either four or six but it was in development for a very long time i'm wondering if this is something that's literally just been added onto the project a lot it, of the political it, it, it references kind of feels like it and you know it and it they tries, don't relate to the core structure. Yeah, it, it tries so hard to be current. And so many of these characters have such goddamn first world problems. I was just so sick of them. I'm just like, you know, okay, fine. You 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 know, you're upper middle class and white people. You you're allowed to have problems, but gosh. Not everyone in the film is white and upper middle class or well, upper class. But I think they, they have pretty much they are, have right? white like, upper middle class. Look at how rich everyone problems. in this movie is. No, no. They have white upper except middle class for, problems. Except for Molly. Yeah, that's yes. right. Except for Molly, but even she co-ops and tries. She, the problems she has are basically that. So I'm just talking about the milieu and the environment. The fact that everyone is going to a elite private school. Is it a private school? Uh, okay, it's elite a public, university. It's a public, no, sorry, they're, they're it's a, at a public school, they're but they're all going to elite universities. Elite universities. The, the, you even know, the big eight. Dude, there's a the, the, there's a guy who's like mega stoner with like the he's long work has, he's being hired straight out of high school that for like $200,000 a year that happens no I, one in this school <laughs> is just the stoner or just the just the popular loser like they're all actually but, but, geniuses but I, I, it's probably it probably just had secretly I, yeah, and they're all this one place at this one time yeah like yeah. would the movie the movie is about the the lesson to like accepting that these people are great but would the filmmakers view them as great if they weren't super geniuses Look, I, like are they really great on their own terms which is I'm part s- of why I think Superbad worked because they had you know they, they, were, were, they were actually losers you know I think okay, I'm gonna qualify your criticism or at least in my view yes I agree this is a film in large respects about first world people with first world problems but you know what there's a market for that and there's first people with first world problems Look, all it means it's not a problem with the film it just means it'll be less accessible and less enduring than a lot of other films again we're referencing super bad but it's absolutely true this will have a much wider audience for good reason Look, Look Olivia Wilde is portraying what she knows probably she comes from an ex- a background of extreme wealth <laughs> yeah Look, I'm, I'm not saying that there is not an audience for this kind of film that's fine but the problem with it is how 
callous it is with its own material. Mm. I mean, you know, you can be okay, and you can actually be sensitive to its own portrayal. And when the tone shift happens, there is a dialogue between Molly and, you know, one other character where they do talk about the perils of trying to be maintaining an image. And it, it does try to make some kind of sincere point but these moments are so few and far between, between this sort of hackneyed mesh of and thing where people are so, you know, they're trying to outscore each other. Actually, the film is symptomatic, the script is symptomatic of all these people and how they behave with each other. They're just trying to outscore points. And the film is trying to do that with the audience. It's trying to, like, outpoint you by saying, hang on, you think we didn't include this reference, but we've already got it here. And that's why we win a point for this. You know, and you've got to give us a point for this as well, because we are so woke, and all these people, they have they have real issues, man. They want to save the world. They want to save poor people in Botswana, and we should get a point for that, too. They and should God get a damn point it, for that. They damn well damn it, should get a point for and that. And goddammit, you should laugh at this, because this is also funny. And if you don't it's find it funny... Good, we should be just encouraging people like that, not laughing at them. No, exactly, but that's the point. This movie is almost forcing you to say, you should find this kind of humor funny, and if you don't, there's something wrong with you, so you should recalibrate your own sense of humor and that I find a bit offensive I don't think it's doing that at all I think it's just appealing to a particular audience I think it's trying to appeal to a wide audience while yeah. yes and there are some sure there are some work points it goes for but at the end some but this some. entire movie is just like a checklist but of again though the, it, I, I find this there's, there's mostly oh, there's tangential plenty, to the actual film other, yeah, there's yeah. plenty of other work elements they could have gone for should they have wished to um, we've talked I want to talk about one scene, well, actually, which I actually really liked, and it is a strange moment among a longer sequence which was really ebbed and flowed, and that was the pool scene. Because, and I re- referenced earlier the confrontation scene, which became dialogue-free. The pool scene is another scene which is dialogue-free. You could They could have filled this with explanations of here's how the character's feeling now, as is very much the case in John Hughes' comedies. However, in the sequence, they just decided, no, um, we're going to have a visual representation of this. And it was the most gorgeous cinematography in the film. I really like that. It's strange to me that a film where the best parts you can point to are all the bits involving the two main characters. The only other, and only the two main characters, the only other really good bits are the bits that are really good bits are the bits that are dialogue free. The, the Yeah, I think the other characters aren't particularly fleshed out. I think you're right that it takes off when it's trying to take you inside the perspective of the main characters. Um, and and also the dynamics of their relationship, but um, the the issue with the side characters is again going back to this idea of everything being way too over the top. Um, the mechanics of the film become too apparent because characters are introduced just as a joke. You know, um, like like for example, the rich guy who holds the pool party. He's just like completely wacky, or the the popular girl who has a mean nickname associated with her. Um, these characters basically exist to be derided by the filmmakers early on. And then until it's the point in the narrative where they have yeah, the suddenly redemption arc the redemption arc happens and they have to be taken seriously. So suddenly they, they sit down and they start, uh, start presenting speeches about the lessons we should be learning. Oh, there's and so it, much speechifying in this movie. That, that immediate transition for, the, for not one but two characters, maybe more, it, it just reveals the, um, the hand of the writers way too much. And it, you know, it's not a tonal shift that I think is out. Amy's arc in in terms of, you know, even her exploration of sexuality is also kind of backhandedly, I guess, it kind of took me by surprise in the sense I was just like, wait, what? Mm -hmm. You know, this this is how you're going to deal with it? 
because they try to go for a sincere point and you know an emotional comeuppance and then comeuppance is a weird word choice but just an emotional moment I should say Uh, and I was just like hang on and then it's just completely brushed aside and then you moved on to no hang on you know now we found the resolution kind of happens I would have a problem the romantic resolutions are way too easy in this I, I absolutely agree with that um, and it's sort of a similar criticism of Hammer Superbad, actually. One of the few criticisms of Hammer Superbad. I have a problem with um, Amy's arc as regards to how she was discovering or coming to terms with sexuality. For reasons I referenced earlier, I think that's actually one of the better parts of the film. Um, with regards to the two characters, the rich boy, the rich guy, and the girl who has the terrible theme, I actually took an entirely different view on this film. I don't think they're going through redemption arcs at all. I think they are pointing out that you, you look at the way these characters are portrayed in our first encounters and our later encounters with them, and there's not that much dissimilarity. All we do is divorce ourselves to some extent from the narrow viewpoint of the main characters and how they view these individuals. And it's pointing out, wait a minute, these characters who have come to know, um, who hold themselves up and who are book smart and who are learned, they also have their own prejudices, just like others may have prejudices of them. I actually quite like that. On paper, I agree with that. It's just that it's such a manipulative and easy way to do it. To I, I don't think the, we can say it's just the film is allied with the perspective of seeing these people as a joke because they're so out, outrageously wacky and over-the-top in their portrayal that there's no way watching the film you're going to take these characters as anything but a joke until they suddenly reveal themselves as not being so. It's just like too manipulative. And like I said, too, you can see the gears of the script turning too much. Yeah. I like say, like, it's, like it's, like it's just a sudden transition. I would say that's for the... Um, very rich character even though I think he's still a very sympathetic character I would not say that for the character who had a terrible nickname she was portrayed very consistently throughout the the thing about this whole dynamic though is I wonder who was mean first (laughs) she's basically they seem to be like a mean mean characters who are always trashing Molly's character yeah like is it necessarily so bad that she holds a you know holds them with to a degree of contempt if they've made her school life hell to some no, degree. No, but they're both lousy characters in exactly. a lot of ways. They are, yeah. But, but, I, but, I'm but not saying that... watching a, a lot of people yeah. who are incredibly flawed. I'm not saying that Molly... Yeah, that Molly's a great character. I'm just saying that this whole premise of like learning that they're great is like... Can they also not learn that she's great and that she should be valued for being book smart? You know? I, know. I mean, part, part of this script is how it's manipulative... Part of the problem with the script is how it's manipulative and how it tries to align you with the perspective of Molly and Amy because of how, you know, people are supposedly mean to them. But yet nothing people about... Are mean. Okay, yeah, yeah. fine. At least people to Molly. We don't really... Do we are, see are, yes, okay. We don't really see people with being Amy, mean to Amy. People definitely seem to be mean to Molly, yeah. 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 But we just I, seem I, to ignore Amy. Yeah. But is which, this whole, which is, I guess, in its own sense, like, to, meanness. To what extent, like, it, it's kind of a strange perspective because, like, with what I was saying before, like, to what extent is the way that Molly acts a defense mechanism she's built up? You know? Um, what, but the whole thing is, like, she has yeah. to learn that everyone around her is actually also great. But also, like, it's a bit there's of a strange that, perspective. Yeah, there's nothing she does or, you know, uh, acts, especially in the beginning or, you know, the, the formative part of the film, which makes you to believe that, you know, you can side with her even though other people are mean to her, you know? She's like, well, she's not really... She's wacky. Yeah, she's She's also... But also, like, because we're seeing the entire film through their eyes, Hmm. we're somehow supposed to believe that other characters are more wacky than them, except these two characters are pretty wacky themselves. You, You know what gets me? And I think it was missing from the movie. 
the one thing we don't get, we spend so much time with Amy's parents, we have no conception of Molly's parents or her background or how she grew up or what environment she lives in. And she may very well be a product or reacting to that. I would Mm. like to have known that. I'm sure the filmmakers and the performers had this in mind, but we are given absolutely no context to this. And it is a problem in the film. Especially because the film points out that she comes from a less wealthy perspective and she seems to be surrounded by people at this high school who are really, really wealthy. So to what extent... Is that is this thing of I have to be superior to everyone academically a thing she's built up just because of a perceived inferiority? I think you're already trying to. And this can be comedy. Yeah, this can be yeah. portrayed as comedy. Exactly. And uh, well, this isn't too serious for the film. Lady Bird kind of did that. I, I guess. was thinking of yeah, Lady Bird. Yeah. yeah, but that's the it thing. doesn't need to be as serious as Lady know, Bird. Yeah, but yeah. like, you can you can approach these aspects because I think the film does want to to some degree have realistic character dynamics to especially towards the end. I and I think this kind of thing can be touched upon and and still play as a comedy yeah which is what i'm i'm not sure about whether or not the film actually is serious about the kind of metatextual commentary it's trying to make about what kind of character dynamics and socio socioeconomic status people come from because it's just like is it just there to kind of you know as a peripheral point of view or are we actually trying to engage with these points and issues or they're just there because they're just there for the heck of it mm. i was never quite sure what the film was wanting to do with these uh, points of view and part of that is that kind of half-baked characterization. Man, there's a there's a just the I just don't think the jokes are that good. That's, like everything, that's like, yeah. everything, uh, it, all yeah. of this would be transcended if if it had really. If good the jokes. film was actually funny, there's a yeah. few funny ones. It, like the, when, when they're together, the panda bit was pretty fu- funny. That, yeah, it when, was pretty good. That was very like American Pie esque. Like it was very like classic teen, you know, ninety actually nineties teen sex yeah. comedy kind of vibe. Lisa Kudrow, Will Forte nailed basically all their scenes. They were uh, funny, yeah. The, it, actually, some the, of the, the, the I, that scene was the yeah the parents. Some of the stuff of the parents actually in general was funny. I referenced the meet and greet where they're doing these signs at each other, and yeah, that was that was good. Again, it should have just been the two of them, and yeah, you know, watch them grow. When it goes super wacky, it's not that funny. Like the um, the kind of derisive attitude to the side characters, like. Um, I think you see that in the stuff about the drama nerds, where they they're basically just a big joke about like look at how flamboyant and over the top they are. Um, yeah, Riverdale have done this. Glee have done this. Yeah. It's well, like High School Musical has done yeah. this. And, and in a movie thinking... about like learning how everyone that's meant to be progressive and learning yeah. how everyone's great, it was basically it's very very Chris Lilly like actually. I was thinking I was oh, thinking that, Mr. That's... G. Yeah, I was oh, thinking it's... so much like Mr. Oh, G from God, Mr. Yeah. G. Yeah, I know. No, I... can we? Is he cancelled? It was basically like, oh, look at how... An-, but in this film, it was basically like, oh, look at how annoying these drama nerds here. are. That was basically their role. It was like, look at how just goddamn annoying they it are. It was yeah. the most generic aspect of the movie. Yeah, when, far. like, if anything, that seems to go against the message of this movie about learning how everyone's great. Yeah, like, I was, Unless you're too gay. But but no. <laughs> you're only allowed to be just gay enough, like Amy. <laughs> but like, but that's also part of the kind of, you know, white liberal feminism where, you know, mm-hmm. you... You try to be like, okay, cool. You know, this is this is the extent. This is the bar, and you can't cross it. <laughs> Again, are all the characters white in this film? I don't know. They're not all white. But I'm saying that no, I'm talking about the white. film's politics, and the film's politics are definitely white liberal feminism and like trying to a point like that. But anyway, like, I will a, die by that sword. Another bad joke, like the the stuff about. Oh god, I don't know if I can talk about this without spoiling it. But the, there's a, a thing about identifying a criminal in this, which is just like oh, so. Yeah. God, yeah. We, we did reference it earlier. It's just, and it was the lowest point of when they switched up the tone back yep. to the wackiness and it just it's just a shrug come on 
how could you go there moment. You could have gotten out of this circumstance in any other number of more creative ways. Yeah. It's just lazy storytelling. But it's also it's also like these twists are like the drug thing earlier, these twists are kind of too telegraphed. Like after that in the initial encounter with this character, I was like, okay, you know, the, the, it was so awkwardly on the nose in, in how, yeah. how, how, like, how he talks. Oh, you'd like be like, oh, it for, has to be shady, right? Yeah, something, oh, something's got to come out of this. Oh, again, I actually I actually thought the twist was quite good. I just wish it had come in the second act when it would have been more entertaining. Right, yeah. When it would have Yeah, right, worked. it came at a bad point. Yeah. And like, it's like at the... There's a scene near the end after we're building up a serious moment and like instead of... Okay, we have to get to a place quickly. So instead of just showing, you know, like urgent people in a car, we've got to show the most over-the-top thing with like this car veering across traffic and almost killing people. It's not portrayed as almost killing people in the car, in the movie, but Matt, if you were driving like this, you're almost killing people. It's just like the, yeah. the tone slips away from her like she, because she's trying to go so wacky and crowd-pleasing all the time and it's not necessary. Go need for speed, yeah. But yeah, I, I, look, the movie. I, I've been so critical, but the movie is like broadly enjoyable because the character, because the actors are good. I'd say, I'd say, well, for all we've said, I'd say go see it simply for the two leads and the scenes where they allow are allowed just to work magic off each other. If you're if you're into this kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, I mean yeah. Look, when it's out on like video on demand or like on SBS World Movies channel, watch it on Fast Forward or good, something. Good prop. We haven't spoken about the <laughs> launch of on Fast SBS Forward. World Movies channel. Yeah, yeah. I was I, like I, segue to something I actually like. I right? watched five <laughs> Studio Ghibli movies this weekend. I was so so happy. I had only see, I'd seen and three new ones. What were the What were the new ones? The new ones were Ponyo, Laputa, Castle in the Sky. And um, to, to oh, do Kiki's Delivery Service. Kiki's Delivery on Twitter Service is yes. a new first viewing. Yes, that all was really nice films. And rewatched um, I, some of my sister and I childhood very favorites, My Debut Totoro and Spirit of the Way. Yeah, which he, absolutely adored. He, has he made a bad film? I don't think Miyazaki's ever made a bad film. Actually, you know, I caught a bit of um, Arietti, which is really underrated. It's pretty good. Yeah, and they're playing the Red Turtle in coming weekends. Nice, um, nice. Also, really good. Uh, I. I don't think I can stand watching House Moving Castle again quite yet. I'm going to give it a few years because I've watched the movie a lot. I think that's actually... Oh, man. this is a, I'm setting up a film fight because I feel you'll disagree. I feel like that's maybe his worst film. Still good. Should we do a Studio Ghibli oh, retrospective God. episode? Um, I think we should. I would love to do that. Yeah, I think we should. Because I think... Yeah, that'd be, that would be nice. Yeah. That would be like us genuinely loving cinema rather than like yeah. hating movies for a change. So yeah. Yeah, would, yeah, yeah. That something, nice. something we all like. Um, yeah, is, something more positive. Is there anything more charming than the bus stop scene in My Neighbor Totoro? No. Honestly, in film? No, no, there isn't. No, no. <laughs> that, that's, that's not even Actually, a fight. That's not even a fight. The, the Totoro soot, uh, sootball characters in Spirited Away bringing, oh, yes, bringing clothes to Chihiro. Who are in um, a few other, the other films. Right. Then bringing clothes clothes to Jihiro, or the um, it's up there with with the um, the bus stop scene. Oh, actually, no. The if I going into those scenes in Spirited Away, it's the um, the furnace monster with his huge arms putting clo- uh, putting the blanket on Jihiro on the other side of the room. Oh, oh man. man, there's something really appealing about the slime monster. Actually, I know it's disgusting, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, it's just great. so sweet. It's like I'm just one of you two, and I can't believe we're running away. And yeah, it's great. Um, it was really okay, good. we'll no, save no. this for a future installment yeah, but, of Film Fight Club. But in very in, our, in great happiness, SBS have launched a World Movies channel, and they're celebrating by. Uh, Studio Ghibli movies every weekend for the whole of July. Um, I know what I'm doing next weekend too. The first day of of this channel was brilliant. There was like Ashes Pure, no, sorry, there was Ashes Pure White was a few days in, but we had like Wings of Desire, we had Playtime. Um, it, it's it's like 
classic films, you know. Yeah. It's uh, it's really high quality. Everything gets repeated as it used to be when World Movies was a channel on Foxtel. Um, it's a pleasure. It's a real yeah. pleasure. It's, 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 it's a thing just to put on the background now. It's free to air. Yeah. That's the most important yeah, that, thing. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Because SBS used to play more films than they used to, and I was yeah, decrying I mean, that. Chris, Chris was uh, yeah, talking about it, you know, of the good old days. Of and, SBS, yeah. Uh, and now they've, the good old days are now, as yeah. the golden age cinema says. Well, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> which is true. I think everything which was back in our childhood is coming back. You know, Aladdin is back. But usually usually it's Lion not in King a way. Usually it's not in a good way. Today. Yeah, well, usually it's in a bad way, like Disney live yeah. action remakes. But this is in a good way. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Bringing people the best of world <laughs> cinema. As, yeah. So, yeah, either anyway. you could see Booksmart or just stay in the comfort of your home and enjoy just, just quality movies. Sink the knife we'll into the declining... One day. Yeah, sink the knife... Maybe. Don't, it could be on Channel 10. Don't do that to yourself. Sink the knife into the declining cinema industry by staying home is our recommendation <laughs> on Film Fight Club. <laughs> no, I, our recommendation no. is to enjoy no, do go to classic the yeah, cinema. Yeah, go, 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 do, do, go to the do movies both. for yep. better movies. I think My Private Idaho is playing a Golden Age this weekend. I wish I could go. I can't make it. But yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I yeah. would like to see. And there's going to be 70 mm screenings of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood very soon. No, so that's I think happening. it's 35 millimeter. I think it's just 35 millimeter. I don't yeah. think there's 70 millimeter. At, at the Orpheum and the Ritz. The, yeah. Orpheum and all the Ritz. Both. Both. Yeah. Okay. Both. Yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Go yeah. to the movies for quality cinema. So, speaking of the movies, Hail Satan. Yeah. Oh, I'm, just saying, movie. I'm just saying Hail Satan. Oh, Sorry, yeah, yeah. Hail Satan. I've got to say, the funnest time I've ever had in a line at the cinema was just Hail Satan, Hail Satan, Hail Satan, Hail Satan. Right. Uh, <laughs> at was George Film Fest. It was good. It, nice. was, it was one of the film's documentaries that premiered at the Sydney Film Festival. According to um, Jenny Neighbor, the documentary programmer, probably the only Sydney Film Festival film in recent memory to feature a question mark in the title is obviously Hail Satan with a question mark and cool. it is in cinemas tomorrow I know um, firstly like kudos to Madman for just releasing it so quickly also with Parasite so you know. oh and Madman um, December 26th oh my god lady on fire portrait of my heart exploding great yeah death. that's right yeah, gosh, yeah. That's, we'll that's fight, a great we'll, Boxing Day pick. Yeah, we're going to fight about that more come Christmas. No, we're not going to fight about it. We're just going to cry. Yeah, we're just gonna, it's just going to be half an hour of us crying and loving this movie. Well, I'm going to cry. Chris is going to fight. I'm, look, I don't, I don't have the passion to fight with you guys because I liked the film. I just wasn't so taken yeah, with it. That's right. We'll convince uh, Chris If you can change. convince me that, it, yeah, that it's yeah. amazing, then... Yeah. Because it's usually Chris and I ganging up against Glenn. Yeah, and now the tables have turned on me. Well, at least until December, which is a while away. But, you know, we'll we'll get there. Rise of Skywalker, we'll see what happens. Oh, dear. That's going to compete with uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I know what I'd rather see. Um, Portrait of a Lady, right? Yeah, good. Okay, thank God. Yeah. I thought I was Uh, Well, yeah, I definitely approve of people watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire instead of (laughs) Star Wars 9. What do you think I am? (laughs) But but I'm going to, you know, Disney have me, so I'm just going to watch it anyway. There we go. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, Lion King, are you going to watch that? Oh, God, that's next week. No, I'm not going to. I'm split because... Uh, Well, look, I've said, who knows? It was the first film I ever saw in cinemas. I think it was mine as well, actually. I have to go. I I have to see it. Look, the thing thing about... um, Disney. But it feels like they're making a shot by shot live act. Like it's practical. Like it's yeah, almost the, the same. It's quite quite longer than the. Um, well, maybe they just have more live footage of like animals. Oh, they just, can't you have know, new songs. Around. There are new songs because you, you don't cast John Beyonce. Fine. You don't cast oh, Beyonce right. and not not give her new songs because Nala doesn't have that much to do in the original film. Uh, maybe they're gonna have like from her perspective. Nala is now you know so instead of Simba's perspective, it would be something kind of, different. 
subverted and have Nala's perspective while she's waiting, at least from her perspective, and it'll be less of Simba and more of Nala, maybe. If, if it's not a shot-for-shot remake, then I'm happy if that's a perspective of it, then sure, at least it's to be something different. Hmm. Unlike yeah. Beauty and the Beast, or hopefully not Milan. Actually, there's something funny about the um, Lion King... We're going way off topic from Hell Satan. Stay tuned, listeners. We will, we'll be talking we will, about Hell Satan in just Satan. a moment. Um, if it's funny, if you look at the trailers and the TV spots for The Lion King, they barely ever show the animals talking. I think Disney know it looks weird. It didn't look that good in The Jungle Book. Like, there's something about the mix of the photorealistic animal faces and characters talking that just like because yeah you can't you can't make their faces move like animation right and and it's just not just, give, just not give in, me homeward bound Milo and Otis where <laughs> they just put voiceovers over these characters and it worked the actual it's animals good enough yeah you don't need to um, animate to the extent that I'm sure they're going to do the joke I've always been making about the Lion King is like what is can you feel the love tonight going to be just like lions mating <laughs> you know like yeah. because <laughs> they should have like David Attenborough's commentary <laughs> they're, 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 Chris I can see what's happening and, <laughs> and they don't have a clue yeah, but you, you can get away with this stuff in 2D animation because there's that level of remove and because the, the world is so colourful and stylized yeah, but this yeah. version is weirdly going for photorealism which has exactly. never been the appeal to the Lion like King a, you know, it's like a story that was written to be the eyes going to be really strange oh yeah man oh the, the, the famous bedroom <laughs> eyes of Nala <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, like the, <laughs> it's a strange combination of a story that was made to play out as a d- classic Disney talking animals cartoon, and you know we've got to spice this up with. I'm, I'm still amazed they haven't <sighs> scar- cast uh, Jeremy Irons as Scar. He's like he's yeah. The yeah they brought scar. back so many so many of the original voice actors. Oh who's, no, they only who's scar? only oh, um, oh, James Earl Jones. Yeah, only James Earl Jones. No, no, Scar is um, Scar is, scar is, yeah, is Chiwetel Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's, that's, Childish that's, Gambino that's is Simba. Yeah. Childish Gambino. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be rapping. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don, Don, his name is Donald obviously Donald Glover. Glover. Yes, yeah. I just think but, of Childish yeah, Gambino. He is, um, he is indeed Childish Gambino. So we, we we will be covering maybe The Lion King in the coming week. I don't know. Probably if we not. can be bothered. If we can be bothered. Like, thing, like, like, you can tell I'm already this biased against it. Should, is, look, is honestly, it even a good idea to okay. review it? Yeah. Be prepared. Yeah. Be prepared is my favorite. <laughs> be prepared for our review. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Be prepared is my favorite Disney song. I, I love it. Whenever there's karaoke, I always sing Be Prepared. With, with, nice. with, with the Nazi hyenas. Yeah, Nazi hyenas. But that's the thing. How do you really dark. How do you recreate that in in live action? Can you have. The rumor was they were going to cut it, but apparently, maybe not. Well, We'll that's the best part. Like, that's the thing. I mean, you know, in terms of the choreography of that song, that's probably the anyway. Well, Disney people remember. Disney have a lot to look forward to. Like this shiny new era is tiptoeing nearer. The shiny new era where like they own everything. (laughs) The whole thing about Avatar is Avengers Endgame going to make more money than Avatar. It's like Disney wins either way. Disney own Avatar now. Avatar's at Disneyland. Fox is owned by. Go see both. Just like, just like. Nothing for the wonder I am. Nothing is making money at the American box office they except wait. for they Disney. They just couldn't wait to be king. Right. <laughs> no, but clearly, but like if you look at the situation, nothing is making money except for Disney. John Wick three has been the only success of the summer outside of of Disney releases. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I'm like, surrounded by it, it, idiots. I wonder if this is going to crater the film industry <laughs> that just like people only go to see the Disney, the big Disney spectacles because no one else has a successful franchise right now. You, you could argue Fast and Furious, but we'll see how they go now. Oh my God, with Hobbs and Hobbs and Shaw. Oh God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 it's it's a really strange time because the film industry is super franchise focused, 
but none of them are succeeding outside of Disney now. But but part of the problem is that maybe something's like got to give. Maybe we do need more original movies. Definitely, we do. I know, but like I'm just saying, maybe because some people might be like, "But I love my favorite franchise," you know. So that's. that's just, I'm just does anyone? Well, it's my my version of people just. Getting <laughs> up and I'm sorry. And, uh, we talk, <laughs> and the one we actually haven't spoken about the other big film news of the week they cast the Little Mermaid lead. Yeah, um, so I'm not sure the actress. Halle name. Berry. Halle, Halle <laughs> Berry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, I, yeah. I, I did read it like Halle Berry. Everyone did. Time, it's so much so that Halle Berry congratulated <laughs> Halle Berry on Twitter. <laughs> okay. But uh, look, it, it's funny. People are saying like, oh, it's, um, you know, it's a Danish story. It's so white. But first of all, this is not Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. Disney's I, version is already way off there. And secondly, it already exactly. has a big Calypso kind of theme to it. Mm. Yeah, do, do I take out the I Jamaican mean, crab? Like, he was one of the best things about the original. Actually, you know, yeah. Jamaica's awesome, yeah. so... Yeah, and, and, music, and it's very far from Denmark. There's definitely a lot of Jamaican well, yeah. influence in The Little Mermaid, yeah, so it yeah. makes sense yeah. for If you Ariel want to be authentic, be The Little Mermaid is a tragedy, all right, guys? Yeah. You know, she, it's, it's not... Oh, God, she meets a brutal end. Yeah, there's this nothing is happy ending about that story. not the Danish version. So <laughs> yeah. it's sort of like, is there, is there really... Love is, is it really dead. worth? Basically, that's the moral of the story, right? Is it really worth getting upset about? You know, yeah. internet racists. Are, are people? Yeah, there, I guess there is. Yeah, there is people. Part are, of it, yeah, um, and Melissa McCarthy maybe for Ursula. I've heard possibly. Yeah, okay. I can see. I, I, we, we watching a bit of but, getting through Gilmore Girls, and part of the I, thing, I can see Sophia's you know, Ursula. I'm, I'm I'm not against casting. I'm not against it. But like once again, do we need? I mean, okay, maybe I'm asking the wrong question because it's not about do we need a Little Mermaid version, but we're obviously getting obviously it. obviously no. We, yeah, we, we, yeah, we're obviously getting Disney it. Disney want no worries the rest of their days, you know. No. You know. Yeah. But, like, that's the thing. I guess Aladdin made a lot of money, more money than I was expecting, to yeah. be honest, because I thought, who needs, you know, a live-action Aladdin? But Dumbo clearly, failed, but that's just the Tim Burton kiss of death. And yeah. Aladdin was... Like, I, I, I said it before, it's a perfect date movie. Al- Al- Aladdin... Was fun. It should. It was more fun than it should have been. So may, maybe the Lion King could be fun. I not too much, but <laughs> but, but I, I just I, I got to say we were in the cinema. I watched this with Chris, and yeah. as as Chris alluded to earlier, cynical, cynical Chris. The scene where the Simpadad character is um, talking to what's the shooting to play it super cool, and then when she closes the door, is just having this oh my god, oh my god, oh my god moment, and everyone in the cinema, including Chris, just you know just has this big smile on their funny. face. It's a funny the movie. The performers. It was funny, and the performers. Were good like these movies can be entertaining i'm not i'm not discounting that possibility no. <laughs> okay should we talk about hell satan yeah all right okay yeah Cool. Yeah, you, the yeah. thing is, I don't have that much to say about Hell yeah, Satan. We should, we should say what Hell Satan. We don't. We don't really want a Hell Satan, but we're going to say what Hell Satan is. Yeah. Hell Satan is a new documentary about a group called the Satanic Temple in the United States, who you might have heard of in the context of Sabrina, the Sabrina the Teenage Witch, new I Netflix did hear show. About there, yeah. Yeah. Because um, they, the Satanic Temple. Um, sued Netflix for the use uh, without permission of Bahamut. The, their, their specific design of a Bahamut statue. Yes, which is a ghost head on an epop torso, this eight foot bronze statue. And Netflix uh, settled out of court, which is quite funny. Yeah. Um, so the Satanic Temple are a group who statedly um, promote religious pluralism 
and freedom for religious groups. Um, they, in the context of this film, some of their main actions are protesting the inclusion of the Ten Commandments statutes on state steps in the U.S. by saying, hey, if you're going to have yours, we're going to be able to put up our religious symbolism too. Yeah. So they bring on their Bakhamet statues. And the film examines to what extent this is um, sincere and in the words of one advocate, to what extent this is a troll. Yeah. Um, there's a very there's a funny answer to that right at the end of the credits, if you stay till the very end, by the way. Um, hot there, there is, there is, there is. But... Um, yeah, th- this film, is it's really about um, people who creatively hijack the media in order to make points about separation of church and state and um, the way that certain conservatives in the U.S. are trying to encroach on that and make points about the need for religious pluralism instead of a specific doctrine being being pushed at, at the government level. Um, I think it's also now a point in Australia, especially with the religious discrimination bill being debated or the oh back man, up again. Don't get me started on that. So you know, it's, you know, this would never have happened if you know. We're not even going there. Continue. No, 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 no. Actually, we could talk about this for a long we, time. We, we can, but I, I think it's surprising that something which kind of felt like a joke in terms of you know hell Satan. Now I, I feel like no, actually it's it is addressing something more salient of our times in terms of how people are reacting to things rather than actually you know just kind of dealing with populism so yeah it's uh, you're right uh, in terms of creatively hijacking other people's agendas and then mm. making them round i think it's the film is trying but to make certain points i'm not sure if it's succeeding in making them as engagingly as it can i think i think it's it's entertaining at first because the uh, satanic temple are just so outrageous yeah they the reason they've had success like i i heard about the bahamut thing when they were trying to uh, you know um as you see in the film, it's actually quite a, a fairly small-scale protest, but it had a big impact because it's yeah. it's so, it's so ludicrous. <laughs> but you you sit a, up and pay attention when you hear it's people. Uh, quite a diverse band, like because news they have all this footage. News readers love just saying the words "the Satanic Temple" are on the state <laughs> steps with their giant goat bronze statue, and they know it. They know exactly what they, they've nailed. Getting into the getting but into the press. Part of the problem of this documentary is the same with the amazing Jonathan documentary. Is that nothing outside of the Satanic Temple is interesting? I think they're interesting because you know they just bring that level of crazy, unexpected wackiness to the proceedings. Mm. But I don't think uh, Penny Lane, who's a director, she has anything to add to the fabric of the documentary and what how she's framing things to actually say beyond. Like, you know, just look at this. Yeah, I don't think um, she goes that deep in examining the temple. I, I think we could have seen more about, like, because it's a bit of an intrusion into the story when she shows the, the Detroit chapter where there's this yeah, extreme... Yeah, I'm just about to go into this, yeah. Yeah. Wow. There's an extreme feminist person um, who's running the temple there and is going against what they believe the temple's meant to be about. And that, that that could have been the entire documentary. The story about, like, the... in it Because it, it shows how, like, the in the politics of an organization, what do we represent? Are we, you know, are we becoming like a religion in ourselves? Um, do... Are we supposed to be just all for something outrageous uh, and uh, stunts? Or, or are we something more disciplined? I mean, the interesting thing is, whether by design or confusion, the Satanic Temple statedly attracted a very diverse range of people, some who are religious, steadily religious pluralists, others who would align themselves more with the values and ideals that um, the Satanic Temple are 
outwardly rejecting, but may be suggested by how the by how they may be appear to be branded. Um, when you get into these breakaway chapters or problematic chapters or individuals who they don't want representing their brand, that's a fascinating part of the documentary. But mm. they shoehorn it in towards the end. There's no real examination. It's this note yeah. of, oh, yes, this happened and we're acknowledging it. And now let's talk more about what's happening in the state steps, which is also interesting. But I didn't feel they touched enough on this to really examine or critically examine who the Satanic Temple really are, which was really crucial to how um, the appeal of this documentary. I agree. It, it sort of comes out of nowhere because we don't really get a sense of how the satanic temple works behind the scenes. And then suddenly we're getting into this complex inter-organizational um, um, disagreements and politics. It, yeah, the shift in turn into the sort of Frederick Wiseman territory where it's just suddenly a fly in the wall in this inner workings of the organization kind of feels out of the blue because we are not given any kind of context as to hang on, hmm. you know, what, what are the motivations? What are the actually... Because the members are so disparate. Like, there's nothing, no sort of overarching mission, overarching theme that you can say that, okay, this is what this organization really stands for. Hmm. I think each individual is in it for their own personal agenda, their own personal reasons. And we're not even following certain individuals anyway, so we can have a sense of narrative or navigational sort of through line yeah, that we can follow either. It's more of a, just a broad overarching thing um, of here's the organization and here's what they do and it sort of stays that way throughout. Yeah, the legal wrangling is hilarious but they're either by virtue of not getting enough access or simply wanting to focus on the media circus, it's a very removed view of the group which are very much the s- subject in front and center here. Mm. Um, there's, and even though the advocate who's front and center for most of the film is clearly so because he is such an interesting figure and so outward and so uncompromising in what he's prepared to do and say, he's not even... Lucian Greaves. He's not even the leader. He's not Bond even... villain name. You oh, know? Yeah. I can imagine him like... He looks like, like, like Mads Mickelson from Casino yeah, Royale. Or like who are the Rupert others? Graves. So, so the, no, uh, Topher Grace from... Right. Dine of the Day? Yeah. He's this... Uh, Dine of the... Topher Grace. No, you're thinking of... Uh, Toby Stevens. Toby Stevens, sorry, yeah, that's right. right. Who played, uh, yeah, no, uh, 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 there's a character called Mr. Kill in that movie, damn it. But the point yes. is, there's <laughs> no Gustav Graves. There, there, that's right. There's Lucian Greaves, Gustav Graves. That's right, that's what they're thinking. He's not the leader. Let's talk yeah. to the leaders a little bit more. Let's talk to people who are actually in charge. Yeah, and but, but really, is there anyone else who's really in charge? He sort of, I think he has a fairly high up position and didn't, he says he didn't want to be sort of the leader, but he sort of felt like he had to at some point. But I guess I think, but part I think of different the people are in charge. Your, it's fairly, guess, but yeah, the movie. This is the issue. The movie leaves us in the dark. I think it's a fairly decentralized organization. Yeah, I, I think part of the appeal of the organization and why people are attracted. But to I'm not sure. Being part of it seems yeah, to be that. Some clarity. Yeah, it's, it's, who was it's, up there? It's, it's not. Yeah. It's not a hierarchical thing. I think mm. you know people can. They're not. People are not in charge in the way that you know people are in charge of organizations or cults or mm. other places with strict order structures yeah i think i think what the appeal of the organization seems to be is that you can really bring in and make the organization your own in terms of what you bring to it yeah, yeah. And um, most religions do have hierarchical structures most yeah. major religions do yeah. and hey here we have and this up-and-coming quote-unquote religion that uh, i mean may become one or maybe detroit, may be one honest, now the, the issue with the people in detroit honestly feels like a religious um like a, a, an issue of um 
succession from the secession from the church kind of thing. That could have been you know? that could have been an entire like it's, film it's, actually. It's so like I would a, have loved to a reform, <laughs> reform with church within the church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice, yeah. But um, obviously that's counter to what the technically the yeah, church the, the, would the, the temple want to be about. But the Protestants. I want to explore within, more of this. Yeah. Like I, don't, I like honestly, this could have been like a, like a thirty minute, forty five minute TV special, and you wouldn't have lo- lost much because it repeats itself a lot. But um, something that I do think it does well, though, is like give a little bit of um, the context of why the media seizes on these images so much and why yeah. they use these the satanic imagery as a troll. Because in the past, they have been really rooted in nothing. Various media scares about satanic <laughs> um, imagery and devil worshippers are coming for your children. That yeah. yeah, really rooted in nothing. I, I think <laughs> the film is strongest when it's actually... They hi- not, they've hijacked that for yeah, their goal. When it's not focusing on the satanic temple, but actually using them as a catalyst to explore how our fascination with uh, what they're doing is basically a commentary upon us and how the media is using that about, mm. you know, here's, it's more a mirror to us, but like, look, you get you get fascinated by these wacky stories and these people and you get so easily conned by these people so it's basically you as the people which is also kind of this narrative which is now so strong within the world where you know we're just trying to now blame uh, people for being too simple and be like no oh no no we have to be more vigilant or you have to be more smart and more critical use your critical thinking sense and your critical thinking abilities to actually discern everything and do the hard work because you you know everyone's everything is fake news and everything is a troll and what's interesting more to remember is that you have a, a religious cultural group which is asking to be treated on the same plate as everyone else and asking for pluralism and and they <laughs> and but they don't really what I would have liked more is to see not just how the mainstream press, the government respond, or and we did talk about how the church responded, but what about some of the other religious groups? Because there's incredible diversity in the states. I remember there was one sequence where they showed a panel, I think it was from Fox News, with a very prominent rabbi and another religious leader from another religious group. But how are minority groups, uh, minority religions, other minority religions reacting to this? Because they would have a different perspective from a majority religious group on religious pluralism having fairly experienced some of those issues themselves. That's true. But yeah, the Satanic Temple, I think their main issue is to combat a, any one religion taking upon too much uh, precedence. So it, it makes sense yeah. that it's focused more um, on their, cla- their conflict with government and big religion. I will say, though, um, on the, they do focus very much on one religious group, uh, being the church. Mm. Obviously, there's very, the church is very diverse with the United States and around the world. One part of it that really disturbed me was their response and how they went about responding to the Westboro Baptist Church. Now, this isn't a group I have any time for, but um, the way that they decided to a- a- activate against this then was pretty disgusting. Yeah, I thought it was and, out of line. And it's okay to feature this, but then the Penny Lane, the documentarians, where was... This is a point where the documentarian implicitly or explicitly needs to come in and say... If they certainly do hold this view, hold on. This is some. This is an attraction of this group. Or ask the church how they feel about it now, because it does seem like it's the kind of thing they did early on, but they would not do now. Based on other material in the film, it seems like they've moved away from that kind of thing. But ask them about it. Yeah, you know, if, if, because, if their response is we made a mistake, we shouldn't have done it. Okay. Yeah. But I wanted to know. It's important to, to when you betray to show something as grotesque as that in a movie. You have to contextualize. Is this the view? this group holds or is this what they actively do with other individuals or other organizations Mm. or is this something they regret um that's much needed context and we needed to know that if we were to get a proper clear picture of the satanic temple yeah i agree but 
at the same time, and uh, I'll say this quite openly, I, I did enjoy this more than Booksmart because, uh, not because of its narrative issues, but because it's just trying to engage with his own material more than Booksmart did. And uh, for some, even though I had lots of issues with it, those are good issues to have. I was like, you know, angered, frustrated for good reason rather than being just be like, you know, why is this happening? And having a lot of WTF moments, which I had a lot in Booksmart. So that is Hell Satan. It is in cinemas tomorrow, as is Booksmart. And you and One Heat Minute is, well, everywhere. And you should go listen to it. Anywhere and good watch, podcasts are found. And also watch Heat if you haven't seen it already. What are you doing? Living under a rock? Yeah, go a... watch Heat before you watch Booksmart or Hell Satan. Like, seriously. Mm. Actually, yeah. yeah that's, that's a fair point. So we'll be back next week, not reviewing The Lion King. Um, I think we'll be doing our retrospective of early 20th century films. We still haven't figured it out, guys. <laughs> Forgive us. We're super organized as always. It's a lucky dip for next week's but, exciting installment of Film Fight Club. So but you honestly, don't know and neither do we. But so but that's but great. You know what? If you're listening to this and on Wednesday night or afterwards, get in touch with us because if you have an idea for something we should cover next week, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we, we, we want to we hear them. Yeah, let us know. We'd, we'll, love, we'd love that. If there's a random film you want us to talk about, a random issue, something we want to, you want to, yeah, us to elaborate on from this show or another random one. year, random film genre, maybe I don't know. What, whatever you think, you think you know we should cover something from the 40s, something from the 30s, 50s, 60s. Random film genres that we don't really give much attention to, or you think we'd never get because we're too you know in tune. I don't know. Whatever you think. Otherwise, we're going back to what 19. 19- 49 or like 50 or something i i haven't we'll see. seen much and i haven't seen much of the, that era to be honest so I'll, I'll be going completely blind so i'd love to yeah okay why not so this has been glenn falconstein chris evans and varat nehru and blake howard have a wonderful night or whenever you're listening enjoy books be book smart and enjoy nice. yeah 